Welcome to the second episode of Christ I. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Christ I. I'd like to share with you at the start of this podcast what I call my faith rest drill. I got with the Holy Spirit one day and He put this on my mind. And these are just selected scriptures that help me to be at rest with Jesus. I encourage you to get alone with the Lord and ask Jesus and ask the Spirit of God to to put together for you a faith rest drill. This helps me in my time of trouble and especially when I feel my spirit and my soul is in an angst. My faith rest drill. The true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. For one who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Is this not the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out? When you see the naked, that you cover him, and not hide yourself from your own flesh. Then your light shall break forth like the morning, your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, Then your light shall dawn in the darkness, and your darkness shall be as noonday. The Lord will guide you continually, and satisfy your soul in drought, and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden, and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. But on this one will I look, says the Lord. On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in Jesus' name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that Jesus has taught and said to you. Peace, Jesus has left you. 
My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. I am the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, my Father takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, my Father prunes, that it may bear more fruit. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. As the Father loves me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. I encourage you to get with the Holy Spirit and ask Him to help you develop your own faith breast drill. I want to read for you from a book called Knowledge of the Holy, written by A.W. Tozer. In the first chapter, he entitles it, Why We Must Think Rightly About God. I think this is so relevant for us today and for the joy that we seek. O Lord God Almighty, not the God of the philosophers and the wise, but the God of the prophets and apostles, and better than all, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, may I express thee unblamed. They that know thee not may call upon thee as other than thou art, and so worship not thee, but a creature of their own fancy. Therefore enlighten our minds that we may know thee as thou art, so that we may perfectly love thee and worthily praise thee. In the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its ideal of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself, and the most portentous facts about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by the secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. She can never escape the self-disclosure of her witness concerning God. Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. Were we able to know exactly what our most influential religious leaders think of God today, we might be able to, with some precision, to foretell where the church will stand tomorrow. Without doubt, the mightiest thought the mind can entertain is the thought of God. 
and the weightiest word in any language is its word for God. Thought and speech are God's gift to creatures made in His image. These are intimately associated with Him and impossible apart from Him. It is highly significant that the first word was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. We may speak because God spoke. In Him, word and idea are indivisible. That our idea of God correspond as nearly as possible to the true being of God is of immense importance to us. Compared with our actual thoughts about Him, our creedal statements are of little consequence. Our real idea of God may lie buried under the rubbish of conventional religious notions and may require intelligent and vigorous search before it is finally unearthed and exposed for what it is. Only after an ordeal of painful self-probing are we likely to discover what we actually believe about God. A right conception of God is basic not only to systematic theology, but to practical Christian living as well. It is to worship what the foundation is to the temple. Where it is inadequate or out of plumb, the whole structure must sooner or later collapse. I believe there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect and ignoble thoughts about God. It is my opinion that the Christian conception of God current in these middle years of the 20th century is so decadent as to be utterly beneath the dignity of the Most High God and actually to constitute for professed believers something amounting to a moral calamity. All the problems of heaven and earth though they were to confront us together all at once, would be nothing compared with the overwhelming problem of God, that He is, what He is like, and what we as moral beings must do about Him. The man who comes to a right belief about God is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems, for he sees at once that these have to do with matters which at the most cannot concern him very long. But even if multiple burdens of time may be lifted from him, the one mighty single burden of eternity begins to press down upon him with a weight more crushing than all the woes of the world piled one upon another. That mighty burden is his obligation to God. It includes an instant and lifelong duty to love God with every power of mind and soul, to obey Him perfectly, and to worship Him acceptably. And when the man's laboring conscience tells him he does none of these things, but has from childhood been guilty of foul revolt against the majesty in the heavens, the inner pressure of self-accusation may become too heavy to bear. The gospel can lift these destroying burden from his mind, given beauty for ashes, and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. But unless the weight of the burden is felt, the gospel can mean nothing to the man. And until he sees a vision of God high and lifted up, there will be no woe and no burden. Low views of God destroy the gospel 
for all who hold them. Among the sins to which the human heart is prone, hardly any other is more hateful to God than idolatry. For idolatry is at bottom a liable on his character. The idolatrous heart assumes that God is other than he is, in itself a monstrous sin, and substitutes for the true God one made after its own likeness. Always this God will conform to the image of the one who created it and will be base or pure, cruel or kind, according to the moral state of the mind from which it emerges. A God begotten in the shadows of a fallen heart will quite naturally be no true likeness of the true God. Thou thoughtest, said the Lord to the wicked man in the psalm, that I was altogether such as one as thyself? Surely this must be a serious affront to the Most High God, before whom cherubim and seraphim continually do cry, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God of Sabbath. Let us beware lest we in our pride accept the erroneous notion that idolatry consists only in kneeling before the visible objects of adoration, and that civilized peoples are therefore free from it. The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. It begins in the mind and may be present where no overt act of worship has taken place. When they knew God, wrote Paul, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Then followed the worship of idols fashioned after the likeness of men and birds and beasts and creeping things. But this series of degrading acts began in the mind. Wrong ideas about God are not only the fountain from which the polluted waters of idolatry flow, they are themselves idolatrous. The idolater simply imagines things about God and acts if they were true. Perverted notions about God soon rot the religion in which they appear. The long career of Israel demonstrates this clearly enough, and the history of the church confirms it. So necessary to the church is a lofty concept of God that when the concept in any measure declines, the church with her worship and her moral standards declines along with it. The first step down from any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. Before the Christian church goes into eclipse anywhere, there must first be a corrupting of her simple basic theology. She simply gets a wrong answer to the question, what is God like, and goes on from there, though she may continue to cling to a sound nominal creed, her practical working creed has become false. The masses of her adherents come to believe that God is different from what he actually is, and that is heresy of the most insidious and deadly kind. The heaviest obligation lying upon the Christian church today is to purify and elevate her concept of God until it is once more worthy of him and of her. In all her prayers and labors, 
This should have first place. We do the greatest service to the next generation of Christians by passing on to them, undimmed and undiminished, that noble concept of God which we received from our Hebrew and Christian fathers of generations past. This will prove of greater value to them than any that art or science can devise. O God of Bethel, by whose hand thy people still are fed, who through this weary pilgrimage hast all our fathers led, our vows, our prayers we now present. Before thy throne of grace, God of our fathers, be the God of their succeeding race. A poem by Philip Doodridge. And again, this was the first chapter of the book, Knowledge of the Holy, by A.W. Tozer. So true that our thoughts about God are so important. If we don't have right thoughts about Him, our life will be lived with unrighteousness abounding. This we must seek to change. And the way to change it is to have the mind of Christ. And the way to have the mind of Christ is to seep our minds in the Word of God, renew our minds, we may become Christ-like. Then our joy will be full. Joy of Jesus will permeate our lives, and we can go through our suffering fully. For the joy that was set before Him the cross, the suffering, the shame, so too can we endure our suffering. God, may it be so in our lives. If we go through our day, we would think rightly of you, O oh God. Write thoughts of you, then live our lives joyfully, rejoicing in the fact that even though, even in spite of ourselves, sinful nature, unrighteousness, we can wear the righteousness of Christ, and it is Christ in us and through us that God sees and is pleased with, and therefore we can say, Christ 